wonderful that we can come and study God's word together. So let's go to God to ask him to help us to understand this rather difficult passage. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you will help us to understand your word, understand it as it came to Daniel, understand it as it spoke to your people in Israel, but most of all to speak to us uh, what it really means to us today as we live uh, in Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now when I look at my life and I get older, I often look back with uh, wiser eyes. And as I look back with wiser eyes, I often realize that uh, maybe I made many mistakes. I think it might be the same for you. You know, when you look back on life, you may come to regret some of the decisions that you have made. And obviously, if you, if you don't, then maybe you haven't gotten any older or wiser yet. But when I look back on life, you know, there are things which I wished for, which were probably not good things. There are things which I prayed for, for myself and others, which were probably not for the right motives. There were some questions which I asked, which were probably the wrong questions. There were some choices made, which were probably the wrong ones. At the time, it seemed right. At the time, it seemed wise. But in the harsh light of experience and wisdom, looking back, they were the wrong ones. Now, I wonder, as we look back in life, it may be just a few years, a decade, maybe two decades, but I was wondering what happens when we look back in light of eternity? When we look back at our lives in light of eternity, what will the decisions of our life look like? Now, I remember uh, in Sydney, when I was studying in the theological college, uh, there was this man called Arthur Stace, and he was a homeless drunk. And he lived in the 1930s, and he became a Christian in the 1930s. And from that time on, after he became a Christian... He started writing graffiti everywhere in, uh, in, in Sydney. And what he would write would be this one word, okay? Eternity. This is actually his actual handwriting. And they'll be found everywhere, on doors, on major street intersections. They even found it in the tower of uh, the clock. And he wanted to write this one word because he said it would be like a one-word sermon where people would reflect on eternity and reflect on their life in light of eternity. And he wrote so many of these one-word sermons, eternity, that uh, during the Sydney Olympics when I was there in 2000, they actually put uh, his, his word, his, his one-word sermon, eternity, on the Sydney Harbour Bridge during the Olympics. Okay, so there's another picture here. It's another one, the next one. So I think that as we look at today's passage, I, I think what we need to look at it is, what are our decisions made in terms of eternity, are they right and wise in light of eternity? Now, what I mean by that, well, let's look at this passage in detail. In chapter 9, verse 1, it brings us again to history. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last... 70 years. So if you remember, as we've, we looked here today at uh, chapter 9 of Daniel, it brings us sort of back again to chapter 1. Okay? Because if you look at chapter 1, right at the end of chapter 1, we saw that Daniel had been deported from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. And it said at the end of chapter 1 that he lived there and he basically operated and worked all the way to this guy, Darius, the Mede, coming to power. So if you look at this timeline, okay, unfortunately, we do need to understand history a bit here in order to understand history, to understand what the Bible is saying. So if you look at this timeline, 
Daniel has been here. Actually, this timeline goes back. Imagine I've got a folded page, so I couldn't scan it. But it goes back a bit further. But Daniel has actually been serving the Babylonian Empire beyond Nebuchadnezzar, beyond all these people, up to Belshazzar. And a new ruler has come, Darius the Mede. And when Darius the Mede comes into power, it's 539 BC. And we remember that, that Daniel had been brought into uh, Babylon, into exile in 605 BC. So 605 BC to 539 BC is? How many years? 66 years. See, I'm trying to see whether your minds are engaged this time in the morning, right? Because obviously, you know, don't you be thinking about Australia versus England or something like that, right? But it's 66 years. 66 years. And now when a new king comes, a new kingdom comes, Daniel wants to know whether it's a good or a bad thing, whether it's positive or whether it's negative. And what he does is what we should do, he goes to God's word. And as we really saw in chapter 6, remember Daniel used to pay, pray three times a day and it would not be beyond expectation that part of what fed his praying would be the reading of scripture. And he would know from scripture, the prophet Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, that Jeremiah had prophesied just as Daniel had come into captivity in Babylon, that God was actually punishing Israel because of her sins. So Jeremiah chapter 25 says this, and we have to pay attention to this because it sets the background of what is being said in Daniel. In chapter 25, it says, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and and will make it desolate forever. So as Daniel reads the book of Jeremiah, as he reads the prophecy of Jeremiah, he knows then that the exile was not an accident. It is not part of the ebb and flow of world history. It is not part of chance and fortune. It is part of God's judgment that he would bring his people into exile in Babylon. But he knows also that the judgment will last 70 years. And he knows that he has lived 66 years in Babylon. So what does he do? Well, in verse 3, as a result of knowing what's going to happen and knowing the will of God, in verse 3 it says, So I turn to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now this soul, as we read here in verse 3, this soul here is is the idea of therefore, right? And it's a very big soul. It's a very big therefore. Because it says that as he read God's word and he knew of the will of God, therefore and so, he applied himself to following God's will. Now, as we've been looking at the book of Daniel, this would have been a very big therefore, a very big soul. Because the coming of King Darius from the Persian kingdom would have been a very positive thing for Daniel. 
If we've been following the book of Daniel, do you remember? At the end of the Babylonian kingdom, when Belshazzar was king, Daniel was sort of like a forgotten man. Do you remember? It required the queen's mother to come and to say, Oh, you know, King Belshazzar, there's this guy, Daniel. He is the one who can help you interpret the dreams. He was a forgotten man. But with the coming of this new king, King Darius, as we read in chapter 6, he was now put as administrator over the whole region of Medo-Persia. And he had been living there for 66 years. So therefore, it would have been very tempting and very attractive for Daniel to, to not think about going back to Jerusalem, to think about going back to Israel. Right? He would have been very happy living in Babylon, living in this Persian kingdom. It would have been good for him economically, good for him job-wise. But here we see in verse 3, knowing God's will, he chose to then turn to God and to pray to God that God's will would be done. It's just like the Lord's Prayer, right? When you pray, thy will be done. And here we see Daniel actually coming to God and praying that God's will will be done and God's people, including Daniel, be brought back to the promised land. Now, I was reading this book by J.I. Packer, and I found it tremendously profound because what he said was, the will of God is both an action and a decision. The will of God is both an action and a decision. See, the will of God is where God decides to act in history in a certain way, and he acts, and it is done. But the will of God is also a decision. We choose to follow the will of God. We choose to align ourselves with the will of God in His world. And the will of God, if you look at this map, was for God's people after 70 years was to return from Babylon all the way to go back to Jerusalem, which was a desolate, destroyed country. And how the will of God as an action showed itself in Daniel's life as the will of God, as a decision, was that Daniel chose to go to God, to pray to God and say, you've made this promise now, I want to be part of this promise to return your people into the promised land. And in Daniel chapter 29, if you look at this passage, God actually said that the return after 70 years would happen because God's people themselves would call upon God to bring his people back to the promised land. So Jeremiah chapter 29 says this. This is what the Lord says. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in the future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. See, here was Daniel aligning himself with the will of God to bring his people back and actually choosing to pray to God, I want to go back to the promised land, even if it means living in the poverty, in the desolation, in the desperation of Israel compared to the great position that he would have held in the Persian kingdom. And I think that as we look at this, I just want to have a bit of a side, right? Because if you think about this for a moment, 
That is the way that God has always worked, isn't it? God tells us in Scripture what His will is, His decision is, and so His action is in this world. And then He also invites us to follow His will. That's what we... I mean, I didn't actually ask Johnson to do the Lord's Prayer. But then when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, Your will be done, both on heaven and earth, we are actually committing ourselves to God and saying, We will be part of Your plan for the world, Your will for the world. And God's will for us is very plain, isn't it? That we must put our faith in Jesus. We must use our gifts to build one another up. We must go out into the world to bring the good news into this world. And I wonder whether for ourselves, whether we would be like Daniel, and whether we would choose as a decision to follow the will of God as he acts in this world. Well, Daniel had no uncertainty in his decision. He decided straight away to go to God to pray. And as he prayed, we noticed that he, he was fasting and he was wearing sackcloth and he was putting ashes on himself. Now, why was he doing these things? Right? Was he putting on ashes because, you know, it's very hot in Babylon. He needed a bit of talcum powder. You know, was sackcloth the latest fashion of the day? You know, it's like, you know, you wear those burlap rags or something. Was he fasting to lose weight? No, all these things, fasting wearing sackcloth, putting ashes on himself, were all signs of repentance. It's a bit like, you know, when you go to, I remember going to uh, one of these Anglican churches uh, many, many years ago, and uh, there was this cushion in front of the chairs. You know, they didn't have nice, comfortable chairs like we had. They had these wooden chairs, which were extremely uncomfortable, and they had these like cushions in front of these chairs, and I thought, wow, these cushions... Interesting that, you know, they don't put cushions on the seat, but they put cushions for my foot to rest on. <laughs> then I realized that actually halfway through the service, you, everybody started going on their knees to pray. And actually that cushion in front was not for your foot rest, but to actually put your knees on to pray. And the, the foot rest was there, I guess, because symbolically as you go to your knees and pray before God, it's a sign of, of humility, isn't it? Because outwardly, you're showing your humility in your outward action. And this is, what, this is what Daniel was doing. Outwardly, he was showing repentance, contrition, remorse, sorrow before God. And if you notice here, in every way, he confesses sin. Right? If you look throughout this whole passage, it's, it's full of verse 5. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked. We have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. Verse 6. We have not listened to the prophets. In verse 7, we are covered with shame. We are unfaithful. Uh, verse 8, again, we are covered with shame. Verse 9, we have rebelled. Verse 10, we have not obeyed. Verse 11, we have transgressed and turned away. In every way, he has, he has said that, that they have sinned, God's people. But what's interesting is that he doesn't use the word, they have sinned. He says, we have sinned. And if you come with me to verse 20, come with me to verse 20, because this is really shocking, right? Because in verse 20, it says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. You see, here Daniel sees himself corporately with the sinful people. He says to God, look, we've all sinned, we've transgressed, we're wicked, we're evil, we're sinful, we've done wrong, we've not kept your laws, we've turned away. But what is interesting is that Daniel himself confesses his sin before God. 
Now, as we have seen in the book of Daniel, from chapter 1 to chapter 9, Daniel is a righteous man. He's an exceedingly righteous man. There is no one in our congregation who is more righteous than Daniel. Anybody think they're more righteous than Daniel? Well, you'd be very wrong if you think so, right? Because this is what the prophet Ezekiel said. And this is God's judgment of Daniel. In Ezekiel chapter 14, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply, and send famine upon it, and kill its men and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. So in God's eyes, Daniel was an exceedingly righteous man in the class of Noah and Job. But here we see that even the great righteous man Daniel confessed his sin corporately together with the people. And I think this is again an important point. that As we pray to God, confession of our sin, repentance and sorrow of our sin must be part of our prayer life. I know that I've heard of some churches and some pastors who seem to suggest that A, either confession and repentance are part of some elementary part of the Christian life, or some pastors even say that we don't even have to confess and repent of our sins as Christians. That somehow the more mature you are as a Christian, the less repentance and confession we must have. But no, that's not right. Even Daniel, the righteous man Daniel, confesses in every way that he is sinful together with all the other people. Even while he is in Babylon, there are things that he is not holy enough before God. And I think for ourselves, the more mature we are as Christians, the more aware of God's holiness we are of, the more we realize in our own life how unrighteous and how ungodly and how unholy we are, and all we need to pray to God and confess. If the first thing that Daniel does is to confess and repent of the sins of himself and of his people. The second part from verse 11 onwards shows us that Daniel says that God is a righteous God to punish them. See, look at what it says there in verse 11b. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. You see, you notice here that Daniel's prayer says that God is right and righteous in his judgment. He doesn't give excuses and say, oh, you know, it's because, uh, you know, uh, some extenuating circumstances, are, we really didn't mean to do it. You know, maybe we did something wrong, but we did a lot of good things too. You see, in every way, when Daniel prays, 
He says that God is righteous and is right in terms of punishing them. And God was right in punishing them because within the covenant, if you see here, it says very clearly that God had said to them, if they did not obey, that He would bring disaster upon them. And therefore, Daniel says, you are right in punishing us. So if God was right in punishing them, then why, why and how should He stop punishing them now? Well, in the last part, in verse 15 to 19, you'll notice Daniel doesn't appeal to how good they are, or somehow, you know, we've reformed and we've come much better, so therefore, you are right now to bring us back to the promised land. But instead, he prays again for God's righteousness, but in righteousness in giving them mercy. Because in verse 15 onwards, he appeals to God's mercy, he appeals to God's holiness and glory. In verse 15, it says, Now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping of all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn for all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate century. Give ear, O our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make this request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. See, it is not because of the righteousness of God's people that he saves, but because of the mercy of God. Because of the righteousness of God, which part of his character shows itself in mercy. And also because of God's name. So if you think about it, if you look up this slide, the, the prayer of uh, Daniel can be divided into three main sections. One, confession and repentance. Two, saying that God is right in punishing them. But three, also calling on God's mercy. Now, what is God's response like? Now, if you notice, God's response is very swift. Right? In verse 20 to 23, it says that as soon as he was praying, Gabriel came in swift flight. In verse 23, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out and which I have come to tell you for you are highly esteemed. Now, I think that as we look at this passage, one mistake we can make is we say, well, you know, if we pray like Daniel, then God might answer our prayers really quickly. Right, so a few years ago, there was this really popular book that came out called The Prayer of Jabez. And basically it said, if you pray like Jabez in this certain way, and you pray for a certain amount of time, then God will definitely answer your prayers. Now, I think that was the wrong way of understanding the Bible, just as it is if we took this prayer and applied it to ourselves in this way. See, look very closely at verse 23. Why is it that the prayer was answered so quickly? Why is it Gabriel came so quickly to Daniel? 
Well, in verse 23, it says, As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I've come to tell you for. What is the reason why the word came quickly? For you are highly esteemed. You see, Daniel was a very special person. He was highly esteemed before God because he was an extremely righteous person. And that is why God answered his prayer so quickly. I think we can learn many things from Daniel's prayer. Yes, we can pray that we must pray like Daniel in line with the will of God. And it was very clear that Daniel was praying in line with the will of God. We can learn by how he prayed in repentance and confession and crying out to God's mercy. But one thing we can never ever say is if we pray this way, in the line of the will of God, in repentance and confession and cry out for God's mercy, that God will answer us straight away. Because God was actually showing us that Daniel was special, in a special circumstance within the context of Jeremiah's prophecy. Therefore, the focus of this passage is not so much on the way that Daniel prayed or how he prayed, but rather it's to focus on the answer to God's prayer, to the prayer, sorry, to God's response to his prayer. Now, I think as we get, you know, into the nitty-gritty of this passage and we say, oh, you know, all these 77, 62, 7, 7, 7, all these sort of sevens, right? That we can lose focus on the big, big picture. And I think that actually when we look at the big picture, something surprising comes up. Because when you ask yourself the question, when you step back a a little bit from the text and ask yourself, what was Daniel praying for? What was Daniel praying for? When he asked for repentance, when he was crying out for mercy, when he said that God was righteous in, 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 in punishing them, what was he praying for? Well, he was praying very specifically for the desolation of the temple and the desolation of Jerusalem to end. Isn't that right? If you remember, if you look up here on the slide, in the very first part of the prayer, he went to God to pray because he had read that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. At the last part of the prayer, what does he say? He says, Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary and give ear, our God, and hear and open our eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. So the word that keeps being repeated is the word desolation. Desolation, the idea of it being emptied or this bleakness, something that's destroyed. So Daniel's prayer in its focus was on the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple. But if you look at verse 24, how does God answer the prayer? Well, it's shocking, isn't it? Because in verse 24, the way that God answers the prayer is in this verse. It says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. I mean, if I was Daniel, I'd be like, hey, this is a bit weird, isn't it? Because I'm asking about when I can go back home to my desolate city and and worship again in my desolate temple, and God is talking about something which is seemingly completely different. He's talking about the end of sin, the finish of transgression to atone for righteous wickedness, 
to bring everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the holy, most holy place. In fact, God goes on and, and he almost goes on to say that, well, uh, the desolation of the temple, that is a problem, but, but that's not the main problem. Because in verse 25, uh, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench and in times of trouble. And after sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. And then after that, it says that there's another period where the desolation will come again. Now, if I was Daniel, I'd be pretty... Disappointed, isn't it? Because I'm thinking about going back to Jerusalem. I'm thinking about going back to the temple. But God is focused on this fellow called the Anointed One. And he tells me that after the Anointed One comes, at some point in time, my temple, my beloved temple, and my beloved city will be desolate once again. I mean, that must be such a downer. But God has a different focus from Daniel's focus. See, the focus of Daniel's prayer was on the desolation of the temple, the desolation of Jerusalem. God's answer was on something much, much greater, which was the problem of sin itself, which caused the desolation. You see, if you think about it a moment, what exactly was Israel's problem? Was it the desolation that was the problem? No, it wasn't. It was, it was all those things in the first part of the prayer. The repentance for sin, the confession of all the wrongs that they'd done, the wickedness, the transgressions, the rebellions, the turning away from God. And God was saying that the answer that I'm giving you is not to deal with the symptom, which is the desolation, but with the sin itself. See, a few weeks ago, I had a terrible cold, right? I had a terrible flu. My nose kept running, it was really stuffed out. I think you noticed it when I was preaching. And my house basically was full of used tissue paper, right? There's tissue paper everywhere. Now I went to see the doctor after a little while and, and imagine if the doctor just gave me medicine to stop my running nose but nothing to, to solve the problem of my flu. That wouldn't really be a very good and effective treatment because my nose would stop running but I'll still be sick. And I think that's the problem here of Daniel's prayer in a sense. right? It's too narrow. It just deals with the symptom which is the desolation of the temple and the desolation of Jerusalem. But God, like the master physician, deals with the heart of the problem. He says, in the future, my will is to deal with the problem itself, the problem of transgressions, to put an end to sin and to atone for wickedness and to bring everlasting righteousness. And he gives this very, very weird and confusing timeline of the 77s. Now, I know that uh, I've been to some of your Bible study groups and you know, you're thinking it's a seven a week. Is it a year? Is it a decade? Is it a century? How come there's 70? Why is it the times like that? Right? Now, I think that uh, I've read uh, many commentaries and nobody really has a perfect answer. Many people have good answers, quite convincing answers. But I think that at the end of the day, we're not really meant to know what the exact answer is. It's part of the elusiveness of apocalyptic literature. But what we are supposed to be certain about, definitely, is that three things will happen. Three definite things will happen. So if you look up here on the screen, right, definitely 
it tells Daniel that Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt at some stage. And that the anointed one will come and he will be cut off. And that sometime after that, the temple again and Jerusalem will be desolate once more. And I think that as we read of this passage and as we see the central idea, we see that what God is really focused on is not so much the desolation of the temple, but the coming of this person called the anointed one who will give atonement for people. Now this word atonement is a beautiful word, right? We should love the word atonement. Because the idea of atonement is where somebody pays for sins. And usually in the Old Testament, atonement comes to the idea is where somebody else pays for my sins. Yeah, I always like the idea of somebody else paying for me. You know, when you go to restaurants, somebody pays for you. You know, you go to a free movie, somebody else pays for you. I like the idea of somebody else paying for me for free, right? And that's the idea of atonement, that somebody else pays for my sins, my judgment. And here, the anointed one will pay for the sins. He will be cut off to pay for the sins of people. Now, the anointed one is the word Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew. And living this side of the New Testament and the cross, we know that the anointed one is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And we know that Jesus went to the cross to atone for people's sins. See, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, it says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement to pay for sins through faith in his blood. In Mark chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, God has everything in control. He is the grand weaver of history. And we know that actually if you look at the six things, next slide, that go, the next one, that God prophesied by the death of Jesus, the atonement of wickedness is done. There is an end of sin, of sin. There's, a, there's a finish of transgression. But we know that the future still lies ahead. That there will still be everlasting righteousness. That there will be a time where there will be no more visions and prophecies. Where the most holy place will be anointed. And therefore we also know that the last part is still ahead of us. That surely Jerusalem today as we know it in the temple has not seen the desolation that God has actually prophesied to Daniel. And I think that this is a wonderful, awesome, and truly majestic prayer, isn't it? Because it tells us that God has solved the ultimate problem of sin for us. Not the desolation problem. That's just a symptom. He solves the real problem, the transgression, the heart of the problem, turning away from God. And all of it is not done because of how good we are. We are not even as righteous as Daniel. But it's because God orders it and is the will of God and his action is effective in this world. I know that in some churches, uh, some friends of mine complain that every week uh, the sermon is all about trying harder. You must try harder. You must uh, do this more. You must discipline yourself more. You must suffer more in this way in order to somehow get yourself right with God. But here is a vision of the future where actually God does everything. God 
is the one who solves the problem of sin. God is the one who saves us. God is the one who gave His Son, Jesus, as the one who will be the anointed one who will be cut off as our atonement. I always remember this old song that we used to sing, and I, and I feel that as you reflect on the words, how powerful it is, because it actually shows that it is God who does all these things, and what a great joy it is for us to receive it. And this song is, And Can It Be? So, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued, that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's might. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke. The dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head. Clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. See, I began the sermon by asking, what are the wise decisions of life? What are the right decisions of life? And if you were to look at life, not from the short term, but from eternity, then surely the right decisions of life must always be to align ourselves with the will of God. If you know that God is going to do all these things, if you know that God has a plan for the world, then surely if we are His creatures, we must align ourselves to the will of God and to choose as a decision to do the will of God. If you know that Jesus came because of God's will to die for your sins, to put an end to judgment and to bring everlasting righteousness and to bring His holy kingdom, then surely the wise decision must be to, to do the will of God to align ourselves with the plan of God because that is the wise and the right way to live. See, there's no point putting our hope in all the wrong places. Right? The temple, Jerusalem, right? denomination, your own good works. No, that's not aligning yourself with the will of God. You know what God's will is, then you need to align yourself with the will of God and to live in light of what He's going to do. You know the future, you see the future. And if we know and see the future, then let's truly do the will of God in our lives. And that's to bow before God, to throw ourselves at the mercy of God and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, and we truly want to thank you for you are the person that controls history. You are indeed the one who has brought your will and your plan into the world and you've taken action. Help us to see that you've already fulfilled part of that vision that you gave to Daniel. That indeed Jerusalem was rebuilt, its walls rebuilt, the temple rebuilt. Indeed Jesus, the anointed one, came and was cut off as an atoning sacrifice. But help us to see that in future... Truly, uh, the temple, Jerusalem again, will be desolate. And the end will come. And truly, all of us 
will rise again to be judged. Help us to, in every way, to learn the lesson of Daniel. And to, as soon as we know of your will, to cast ourselves upon it and to align ourselves with it. And to continue to always trust in you in everything we do. Because we know that it is not salvation from ourselves, but salvation from you that really matters. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.